a good God and uh, you give us your word. Lord God, you speak to us. Help us to be people that listen. Help us to find our confidence in you and in nothing that we do. Uh, thank you, Lord God, for church today, the gift that it is. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, they're, they're arguably the most popular genre of television drama today, uh, judging by... Um, oh, I'm not, my clicker's not working, guys. I need my clicker. My clicker, please. There's lots of clicking to do. This is all being recorded. Isn't that fun? Someone's thinking, what are they doing? Goodness me. Uh, it'd be really helpful today if it's going to work. should work. Just um, talk amongst yourselves for a moment. And where's... Oh, it's Callum, the kids have gone out. It's Callum's birthday today. Wow. And Harry's. There you go. Okay. Any other birthdays today? No. Okay. That's all right. Kim's baby's due today. Yeah. We good, we good to go? I'll do that right now. That's the old... Is it plugged in at the wall? Either one. Nah. It looks different at the top there, actually, than it normally does. Yeah. Kim's baby's due today. That is exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Where is it? Fern, when are you due? Oh, not Seven more long weeks. <laughs> Who's counting, hey? I bet you are. <laughs> okay, I think I'm going to just continue on. Um, you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit. I'm not going to use that until it's ready to go, so otherwise it'll be confusing. Well, I don't know if you've heard it. These are, if you look at the top 20, say, Netflix shows, all right, that sort of uh, television shows. They're shows like Stranger Things, uh, which is a bit of a favourite of our household, to be honest, it's a bit of fun. Things, a show called Afterlife, Lucifer, Tidelands, The Last Kingdom, even The Good Place, we're going. These shows here, they, um, they are the most popular shows on television at the moment. Now, what do they have in common? Well, they're all immensely popular, and they all use these themes of spirituality, uh, good and evil, the demonic, evil spirits, vampires, the afterlife, the underworld, and all of which evidently keeps us watching. It seems that modern Australians today have a fascination with all things the devil, demons, and darkness. But they're just TV shows, right? You know, they're just stories. They're just fiction. So what then do we make of this story that Andrew just read for us from Mark's Gospel? Would that easily, it seems like, would easily fit into one of these shows, wouldn't it? Is it just fiction? Or is something, is something far more extraordinary, far more significant, Perhaps we could say significant on a cosmic scale going on. In Mark's Gospel, Mark uh, answers the question. It's a simple question, really, of who is this man? It's a question that we all need to have an answer to. Who is this man, Jesus? Is he just a good story? Would he make a good Netflix show? <laughs> or is he who he claims to be, the historical Jesus, who walked this earth, who died and rose again? Is he the Holy One of God? Because even the, devil, even the demons in, uh, at Capernaum, well, they confess that. God's Son, who has the power over and authority over evil. So fiction? No. Strange? Uh, mysterious? Fascinating? 
Oh, yes, for sure. So this is where we're heading today. And you might want to have a look at your outline and you can see where we're going. Jesus teaches that the real world includes a dark spiritual side. And we shouldn't ignore this. Yet this is still God's world. And the good news, because of the gospel, is that we have no reason to fear. Now this morning, I want us to consider how we, would, we respond to the devil and his tactics. That's our question, I guess. How do we do that? How should we respond to this dark spiritual world? What does Jesus say in his word to followers of Jesus? And what, what does Jesus' interaction with this man in Capernaum, possessed by evil spirits, what does that tell us too? So that's where we're heading. Now, Christians' responses, Christian responses to this topic, they do vary. And I guess you could think of them in terms of a, of a spectrum. See, at one end, you've got some Christians who take the devil uh, well, too seriously. In other words, it's all they think about, it's all they talk about. Uh, demons are everywhere, they tell us. A demon of this and a demon of that. The Christian life is a series of devil-dodging exercises. But the effect of this type of thinking is that it's, well, it's not only unbiblical, I think, as we'll see, but there, it results in fear and uh, lacking belief in the promises of God and the power of God and the victory won for us over sin and death on the cross. But then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is also, I think, we'll find unbiblical too. And maybe, maybe if, as, if you're a, growing up in a Sydney Anglican church, like I became a Christian in that, that sort of background, maybe that's where we might fall in this end here. In other words, well, we don't take the devil seriously at all. So we never even address the devil's work or even the devil's defeat. Spiritual warfare, well, that's something the other Christians, they talk about, not us. And the effect of this is thinking of the devil as irrelevant. That's the effect of this end of the spectrum. And for one, that's one of the greatest victories of the devil then. I think as we'll see, and as we keep growing in our understanding of God's word, is that the Bible sits somewhere in the middle, and that's where we ought to sit. Somewhere in the middle. That's all right. Michelle's struggling with that. But I think where we need to be is good enough. Uh, that's the, the apostrophe is wrong. Sorry about that. Um, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so that's, what we want, that's where we want to be. Uh, somewhere in the middle there. And let's start then by, making the, by um, starting what the Bible makes clear, that there's a dark spiritual side to this world. So it's on point one in your outline there, the real world, and that includes this dark spiritual side. So whether it's demons or unclean spirits that rise up against Jesus or the spiritual powers beyond magic, uh, behind magic and witchcraft in Acts 13, uh, divination or idolatry or the principalities and powers or authorities and powers that uh, Sharon read for us from Colossians 1 or, of course, the devil, the, the slanderer, he's called Satan, uh, defined as the accuser, the tempter. The Bible teaches that the real world includes a dark spiritual side that works against the goodness of God. And in John 8, 44, actually I've got that up already, don't I? John 8, 44, Jesus explains that the devil is a liar and a murderer. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that the devil, uh, that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
The devil lies and deceives in order to kill. And we see this in the very first appearance of the devil in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? In the garden, he questions God's word, he questions God's goodness, and he lies about God. Now, why? Well, because the devil, he wants to kill, destroy, and devour. And that's exactly what happened. As the man and the woman believed his lies, they fell under the judgment of God. They became sinners. And sin, when sin entered the world, uh, human beings began to die. But the dark side is always part of God's world. But as much as some movies and uh, some uh, unhelpful uh, Christian books would like to tell us, there's actually no dualism in the Bible. That is, there's no equal and opposite forces of good and evil battling out to see who might win. It's not as if it's God versus the devil in some kind of uh, Star Wars, the force versus the dark side, evenly pitched battle. That's not how the Bible describes it at all. And we see it straight away in Mark chapter 1, don't we? The evil spirits are scared of Jesus. They're threatened by him because they know they can't win. They can't win, take on the Son of God and win. Have you come to destroy us, they ask. We're not sitting on some knife edge of uncertainty whether or not we'll win this battle with the devil and where success and failure depend on us. That's not how the Bible describes this battle. Now, what's difficult to comprehend sometimes, and it's fascinating at the same time, I think, is that when demons or even the devil himself are operating, and we see this, I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment, they're serving God's purposes, not their own. It's God's world and he's in charge. So even in this episode in Capernaum, in the synagogue, God's purposes were not only to heal the man, but to show Jesus' authority, his identity as the Holy One of God, who has the power over the devil. Let's take another example, Job 1 and 2. If you know the story of Job, the devil has to ask permission to afflict Job of his troubles. And in the end, God permits this because it helps Job understand more about him. So it's got really nothing to do with the devil and his schemes. It has everything to do with God and his plans and his purposes. I'll give you another example. This one I've got up on the screen. Uh, Acts 2. Acts 2, 23 and 24 shows how Jesus' death on the cross was all according to God's plan and foreknowledge. You see the words up there. And even the use of evil men or even the devil himself. Remember, if we throw Judas's temptation and betrayal into the mix, even the evil men, the devil, could not stop God's good purposes. Out of this absolute moment of evil, God brought about, God brought the greatest moment of good, and that's Jesus dying on the cross. So how then does the devil work today? That's a question we ought to answer. Well, in answering that question, some people, again, go, go straight to the dramatic accounts, the spectacular, a bit like what we've read from Mark chapter 1 today. The man possessed by evil spirits at Capernaum. That's what we should expect. Or the man of the tombs who, uh, who Jesus heals and then sends the spirits into the pigs. I always feel sorry for the poor little pigs and they fell off the cliff. That's not, not good for pigs. Anyway, uh, that's how the devil works today. That they say, so working in and amongst evil, a demon possession, witchcraft even, um, satanic worship and so on. It's all very scary, isn't it? Those sort of things. 
Demons are everywhere. Sometimes that's what they say. Uh, sometimes no longer is there talk of human sin. It's all demonic. So anger is no longer anger. Uh, it's the demon of anger. Lust is no longer lust. It's the demon of lust. Is this how the devil works today? Well, it's not the language the Bible uses. Uh, it, it, in fact, it turns this into a devil made me do it type situation. I, I, just for a bit of a break for a moment, because we might need it. Um, I like this little uh, thing from The Simpsons. The devil made me do it. The first time and after that, I did it on my own. Um, so Bar at least Bart's on the right track, isn't he? He's on the right track. Again, I think, um, I suppose just as serious is the idea that someone can have, a, a, uh, you might have heard this, a demon of anxiety or a demon of depression. Not only is this dangerous and irresponsible, especially when it comes to mental illness, uh, but it all, all this results in fear. And again, it's not the teaching of the Bible. And it all begins by treating the extraordinary stories in the Gospels as if they were the norm. So, and if you want to get technical for a moment, the mistake is when we read passages like what we've read in Mark and maybe in Acts as well, the we mistake is when we read them as prescriptive rather than descriptive. So where they, where they prescribe rather than describing. The mistake is reading them as prescriptive. That's the norm. That's what we should expect. But the overall message of the Bible when it comes to the devil's work is actually much more straightforward. That is, the devil works most powerfully in the ordinary, just in the everyday. That too is a reality of God's world. It's got to be up there as the most significant error modern Australian Christians will make. We assume that because we don't see the spectacular work of evil, this means the devil is not active. This is the, a great victory of the devil. Even though we may not see the spectacular in our society today, a, a society that pushes God out is just as demonic as a society that has the devil on every corner. Now, in Luke's Gospel, in the famous temptation scene, when Jesus confronts the devil in the wilderness, the devil says that everything in this world has been given to him. It's Luke chapter 4, verse 6. That's true. Not that God is not in charge, but in a real sense, the things of this world are the devil's. That is, the attractiveness of of the, kingdoms of, the, of the kingdoms of this world belong to the devil. It's why Jesus spends so much time talking about everyday ordinary things such as money, wealth, possession, just ordinary things, status, power, work, career, family, relationships and friends. All those things Jesus talks about because they can easily be used by the devil to tempt us away from Jesus. All these things you see promise security and they tempt us to find our security in them. In fact, because the devil is so ordinary in his working, the danger is even greater. Now let me give you an, let me give you an ordinary example. An ordinary example of where the devil might be getting a foothold as to use the words in Ephesians 4. Uh, in our lives, as 21st century Australian Christians. Last week I spoke to um, 
I plugged an article in the Southern Cross. I don't often talk about the Southern Cross. I probably should more often, but anyway, I don't. Um, the Southern Cross is the Anglican Church, the Sydney Anglican Church magazine that comes out each month. And there's a particular argue, uh, article this week that is very good, and it's about church attendance. So uh, this is the... Um, oh, I've put up other pictures too. Sorry, my PowerPoint's a bit out today. I apologise for that. Um, so this is the front there. You can still get copies over the back of the, uh, the church there on the table. Now, what struck me as I read this article, and I admit I'd never thought about it this way before, is that our decisions in regard to church attendance are a spiritual battle. A spiritual battle. This is, what the, this is how the author put it, right at the beginning of the article. The truth is that every Sunday morning, in the hours before church services start all over the city... I don't like how they put city, by the way, because, you know, they, did, they forgot to include things that happen outside the city... <laughs> I'll write to them and complain later. Anyway, all over the church services in our diocese, which includes Robertson, down to Ulladulla and across to Lithgow, anyway, there is a real, a real and deep spiritual war taking place. The truth is, the devil does not want you to come. I'm going to have to stop for a minute. Our dog has just walked in. Because that Teddy's going to go... Archie, can you look after Teddy? Unbelievable. We have a problem in the Thomas family. It's called Eve Thomas. She goes to church in the evenings down in Shell Harbour and um, she has a sleep in on Monday mornings and sometimes lets the dog out. Sometimes the cat comes in too. And hopefully the cat won't come in. Anyway, okay. So, this is a pretty serious point and we've been interrupted by the dog. Anyway, let's keep going. Let me read that quote again. Let's start there again. So the truth is that every Sunday morning, in the hours before church services start all over our diocese, there is a real and deep spiritual war taking place. Now, here's the truth. The truth is the devil does not want you to come to church. He does not want you to grow in your trust in the Lord Jesus as you hear the word taught and respond to it in faith and obedience. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to encourage others meet over morning tea and encourage each other in gospel conversations. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to serve God's people, whatever it might be on a Sunday morning. He doesn't want you to do that. He loves it when you skip church. He loves it. Now, I know this is a bit hard to hear right now. You're thinking, hang on, I'm sitting here. I'm in, I'm in church. What are you having a go at me for? Preaching to the converted, so to speak, or the, the choir. But know this, okay, this morning, a little spiritual battle was won. You're here. Know that, won't you? See, gathering as God's people on a Sunday morning is one of God's greatest gifts. It really is. It's one of God's greatest gifts he gives us. Another fascinating part of this article, and I do hope you read it, is the results of a particular survey done across this diocese. Uh, one conclusion from the survey was that most people believe they attended church about a third more than they actually do. Uh, and, and it's just, and that's, it's not just an issue here in our church. It is. It's an issue right across our diocese, and I suspect in many other churches and denominations too. And from what I read, it's a trend across the world. However, only in what we might call the West. In other words, wealthy modern nations. That's the trend. Regular is once a month. 
twice a month. Uh, we think we go to church a lot often than we actually do. Perhaps it's time to have a reset of priorities. I've decided to love God and his people more than the world around me. To say, no, I can't make it. Sorry, I've got church. Or, no, I'm, you know what, I'm going to be late. I'll go to church in the morning and then I'm going to come. Or, no, I won't sign up to that because it's on a Sunday morning and that's when I meet with God's people and that's more important. And yes, at times, that will mean that you will miss out. You will. And you might receive some pushback from friends and family. And your child may not have the same experiences as others. He or she may end up playing a different sport for a time. But friends, let's hear the very, very important words of Jesus. He says in Matthew 16, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? It's important stuff, isn't it? And that's how the devil works. That's how he works, just in the ordinary. Okay, so that's what we've seen so far. The devil works in the ordinary, and that's one example we've used. Uh, that's a reality in God's world. But there's another, I want to say, more important reality that we want to focus on and that we want to remember. And that is that Jesus has destroyed the devil's work. It's why he came. We live in God's world knowing this, but also knowing the devil is still active. Let's think about that for a moment or two. This is one of the most beautiful parts of the New Testament. And it's completely unexpected how Jesus destroys the work of the devil. See, if you were, say, if, I, if you asked a Hollywood director, right, to tell us how Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, he, he'd probably set up this director, would set up this massive, epic battle scene, right? You know, Lord of the Rings style. Battle of Helm's Deep. Is that the one? Where's Sienna? Is that the one? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, so between the Son of God on the one hand and then the devil and his minions on the other. It's massive, huge. Yeah. And there'd be some kind of huge clash in which Jesus would, by the skin of his teeth, defeat the devil. Some climatic battle. But unfortunately, this kind of drama has, and also fed into some Christian versions of how this victory took place. It's fed into that. But this misses the beauty and wonder of the way Jesus actually did it. 1 John 3 verse 8, and I've got it up on the screen there, tells us that when the Son of God appeared, he came to destroy the works of the devil, and he did it by dying on the cross. He defeated the devil, but he did it indirectly. Not directly. There wasn't a huge clash. Instead, when Jesus died on the cross, he went saying that the ruler of this world, the devil, had no hold on him. That's from John 14 verse 30. In other words, the devil had nothing to accuse him of. Remember, Satan means the accuser. The devil had nothing to accuse him of because Jesus was sinless. So Jesus died bearing the penalty for sin, even though he wasn't a sinner. He took our sins upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That's how he won the victory. Because he took our sin on himself and paid for it, the devil no longer has grounds to accuse us. You see? See how lovely that is? <laughs> and so what about the devil working today, uh, tempting us, the Bible says, uh, 
accusing us and so forth. Well, he, he can't accuse us when we're in the Lord Jesus. That's for one. But how does the devil work? Well, the devil has been destroyed in the same sort of way that our sin has been destroyed. That is, there's a now and a bit of a not yet as well. I'll explain. See, there's a reason why the end of the world didn't come at the cross. God, in his grace, provided a period of grace in which the gospel is now going out to the nations of the world, saying, come, the devil has been defeated, your sins have been paid for, forgiveness is yours, eternal life is yours. In this period in which we now live, things aren't completely wrapped up. We're waiting for the end where sin and its effects are no more. Meanwhile, the devil is still active. It's a bit like he's on a leash, if you like, on a chain, trying to take the gospel away from people so that they don't hear about his crushing defeat on the cross over the devil and, and believe it. That's what the devil's doing today. Okay, so let's, let's, let's then think about, and as we finish, I suppose, how do we resist the devil? Well, we don't fear. Remember that um, ad, I think it was in the, must be in the early 2000s, it followed the terrorist attacks of 9-11, and we were told as Australians to, not, to, to be alert and not alarmed. Remember that? It's not a bad little, I think, did I have, I couldn't find a picture for it, it was a bit, bit sad, I tried really hard. There's some ads on TV, be alert and not alarmed. But it's not a bad way to understand our response as Christians to the devil's work. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. That's nothing to do with alcohol, by the way. Sober mind just means clear thinking. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We're, we're never told to face up to the devil in some standoff. The Bible never says that as much as the Hollywood dramas would like to go down that direction. Instead, we're told to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus, believe it, stand firm in it, resisting the devil in the process. And as James uh, chapter 4 says, submit to the Lord and the devil will flee. We don't fix our eyes on the devil. What do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus. That's our indirect fight. There's no call to directly address evil spirits but a strong call to directly address your Heavenly Father in prayer. So what security do we have against his attacks? How can we avoid falling victim to them? Well, the only security, as Paul forcibly uh, really tells us, is to put on the whole armour of God. You might remember Ephesians chapter 6, write on your notes, read it on later on, but it talks about the belt of truth. That's the biblical gospel. Put that on. Know the gospel. The breastplate of righteousness, well, that, that's the integrity of an honest conscience, being real with God, for example. The firmness of stance, the, the feet, the gospel of the feet of, um, of the gospel of peace. That's assurance that you are reconciled with God. Uh, the shield of faith, that's an active trust in, uh, in Christ and his promises. We trust in what God has promised through Jesus. The helmet of salvation, the confidence in Christ's keeping power now and forever, that he will save. The sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, that's the word of God. Know your Bibles, read your Bible. That's our weapon of choice. Uh, and that's the weapon of choice of Jesus used, wasn't it, in the wilderness when he was confronted with the devil. He got out his Bible and he quoted scripture. We take these weapons, says Paul, 
And then we pray to our Heavenly Father, and you need not fear Satan's attacks. You will recognise them and be able to resist them. And the promise of God is that he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. From 1 Corinthians 10, we stand firm in Jesus and he'll provide a way out. And friends, because the accuser has been defeated, we can no longer be accused. Our sin is forgiven. Our saviour has died and risen. There's no need to fear. No need to fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I've got this up on the screen as well from Romans 8. It says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, part of God's world, but that won't separate us from the love of God, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of fear, well, actually, it's about joy, the joy we have in the Lord Jesus. We've been learning a new song recently, um, and uh, we, we could have done it today, but I got mixed up in my songs. So anyway, it's okay. But I'll quote the words to you. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. It's quite an upbeat song. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. It's really from Romans 8, isn't it? Who can stand against us if our God is for us? No need to fear, because our God is for us in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that good news? How about I pray, and then we've got a bit of time for uh, questions, which I wish there wasn't time for, but that's okay. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we, uh, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you, Lord, that you're powerful and almighty. And Lord Jesus, you have power and authority over all things, and that includes the devil, the, the great accuser who cannot accuse us, Lord Jesus, because we trust in you. Lord, we pray that um, as we think about this, we won't have fear. We'll walk away, Lord, knowing that we can trust you and we don't need to fix our eyes on the devil and his schemes, but indeed only on the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to know that temptation will come and when it does come, we pray that we stand firm in you and we resist temptation. In Jesus' name. Amen.